Welcome to NTRUST Engage, an open forum for the most innovative leaders in security technology. I'm Samantha Maybe, and on today's episode, we're going to dig into the topic of post-quantum and its impact on blockchain. I've got two guests joining me today. I'm joined by my colleague, Pali Sardar, Director of Product Security here at NTRUST. I am. And I'm also excited to introduce John Geeter, who's joining us today as well, the Chief Technology Officer and Co-Founder of Jitsuin. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate you taking the time to join me today. On our previous podcast, we took a look at quantum computing, the threats associated with it, and what organizations should be doing to prepare for a post-quantum world. But today we're going to continue the conversation, but more specifically looking at its impact as it relates to blockchain. So to get started, I think what would probably be great is to do a quick level set with our listeners. And perhaps, John, if, if you don't mind, can you provide a quick overview of blockchain, what it is, what it's good for, where the technology is going? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, it's one of those topics that could take uh, three minutes or three hours. But I think with the important linkage to the, the topic of post-quantum, what we can think of as um, the collection of technologies that all sort of claim to be blockchain or, or something like it um, are always ledger-based, uh, meaning you're kind of keeping records of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they're based on high-integrity crypto, so you're trying to make sure that the stuff you're keeping records of has high integrity and has a, a long lifespan. And they're decentralized, meaning that you've got many stakeholders having different um, access and control of that computer system. So um, one of the best ways to think about uh, blockchain in Uh, standard architectures is that it takes that um, heavy centralization from the old web two world. So that's where all of your messages have to go through Facebook or all of your emails goes through one email server under the control of one company, under the maintenance and and control of um, one sort of sysadmin. And it moves and spreads that around. And that gives you two, two different sort of great properties there. It gives you a spreading around of control. Um, as I've mentioned, so there's not one person uh, with a kind of big red button or a back door who can um, sort of turn off your service or modify records or, or somehow interfere with your with your operations. But it also brings um, a shared and decentralized accountability. So um, you know everybody who's who's doing things on the platform and recording this long-term high-integrity data to that record of you know what happened or when who did what. Um, they're also held to account um, for for what they did because once it's there, you can't hide it. So don't get too hung up on specific types of blockchain. Don't get too hung up on Bitcoins or Ethereums or or anything like that, or certainly not hash graphs and and, and some new technologies. The basic fundamentals of anything in the um, blockchain stable is that it uses cryptography and it uses fair access principles to make sure that everybody who relies on data and generates and uses data in their operations um, has has fair access, good control, and a good understanding of how trustworthy that data is. That's awesome. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they think of blockchain, they associate it with something like cryptocurrency, but that sort of eliminates the actual understanding of the underlying technology. So that was uh, really appreciate you going through that. I think that was a great overview. So blockchain, we, we hear, you know, it talked about as a buzzword and same with quantum computing. So bringing the two of those worlds together, what does quantum computing have to do with blockchain and what threat do advances in quantum technology pose to blockchain? Should I take that, Sam? Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, so thanks, John, for the really great overview of what blockchain is. I was very succinct. 
Um, you mentioned two things, or actually three. You talked about accountability um, and integrity, and, and actually and control. Um, so uh, the whole thing around blockchain is that it relies heavily, very heavily, on on cryptography um, to do uh, a couple of things. One is um, so for the transaction mechanisms where actors have to authenticate themselves and the data to be transaction uh, transacted um, to to the system. And the, the actual other side of it, um, probably not so relevant in some blockchains, but consensus protocols. You see more of those in cryptocurrencies where um, transactions are validated by a group of nodes. Um, so they all reach consensus before you can actually add them to um, a, a block. Um, so yeah, to to my mind, uh, I think you know blockchain is essentially okay. constructed and from threat, crypto. Yeah, yeah if, if if I can can come in, that's a, an interesting place to draw the threat, right? So, um, I, I guess we're in a space, and N trust lives in a space, um, and what we find time and time again is that um, cryptography and its application are almost mm -hmm. always misunderstood. Yeah, by the time a thing is in an application or it has a name, people forget why they did it or what the purpose of the mathematics was. Um, so I think it's really important, first and foremost, to work out what we're trying to do with the cryptography in blockchain and how it's different to some of the sensational uh, post-quantum stories that are that are coming out at the moment. I was listening, curiously, in Switzerland, I was listening to the BBC just last week, and they had a senior member of uh, GCHQ, I think it was oh, on, yeah. on the Today program talking about this threat, and and even you know that that explanation wasn't particularly great in in my view, which is a bit worrying. But it sort of kind of compounds the uh, the misunderstandings that are out there because some people quite rightly are worried about this sort of pre-caching, pre-decryption attack that's going on, which I'm mm -hmm. sure we've spoken about in other other episodes where. Um, you know, right now, nobody can decrypt all our traffic, but they're just collecting and collecting and collecting so that in the future, when a sufficiently capable quantum computer comes along, it can crack the key exchange. The key exchange then gives up the symmetric keys and symmetric keys can decrypt all your secrets. And that is scary to mm -hmm. some people for some reasons. That's not as relevant to blockchains because although there is a confidentiality angle to it, um, and you know, it's obviously important to have confidentiality, the key fundamental thing that blockchains are trying to do in computing architectures isn't that. It's an integrity thing. So what Correct. they're trying to do is to make sure that if something is written on the chain, that's what was always written on the chain. If it's got an identity attributed to it, that is the identity that was used and so on and so forth. And so where the quantum threat comes in is much more about threatening the integrity of historic ledger records. Because if you could forge something, you can backdate. And if you can backdate, you can effectively change history. And if everybody's built their applications to believe that their history is infallible or immutable in, in, in blockchain jargon, um, mm -hmm. that's where your problems come in. So the threat is not one of compromising state secrets and decryption, because decryption is relatively safe already. It's one of ensuring the truthfulness of things that you're reading from the past. Yeah, that seems uh, the ability to rewrite history seems like kind of a big deal there. So based <laughs> yeah. on that threat, what what can be done or is being done to help mitigate this? So blockchain is quite interesting in the sense that uh, to some degree, it's already um, quantum resistant. So there's two types of attacks that people are worried about with 
um, quantum computing. One is actually sort of breaking public key crypto. I mean, that Shaw's algorithm will, will allow you to break public key crypto. And the other is actually Grover's search, which will allow you to do faster searching on hashes and even symmetric. Um, so the, the latter, so Grover's attack will, will presumably be targeting consensus type protocols. And even NIST um, has been saying that it's very difficult to perform such attacks and even mm -hmm. to compete with the ASICs um, and the way at the rate they're actually being produced and how fast they're going. So we, we can probably put that attack to one side. So attacks on consensus out of the window, maybe um, the attacks to signature schemes and that's all based on the discrete problem, uh, log problem are, are perhaps where you might have to worry a little more. And there's maybe three areas. One is where you could reuse addresses, um, reveal the public key. And, you know, again, that's more relevant where you're trying to steal money on cryptocurrencies. One on where the transactions have already been processed. So they're on the ledger. Um, those are a little more difficult to, to attack because they're kind of embedded in a layer of hashes already. And it's, you know, you'd have to out hash the, the ledger to, to actually attack that. And then there's the, the bit where you have unprocessed transactions where that's where it gets a little more tricky. And say, if you had a very fast quantum computer, um, transactions that were broadcast to the network and before being placed on the chain, um, that those are potentially vulnerable. But I mean, this is all, uh, yeah, to my mind, it feels uh, a bit far-fetched, but those, to my, uh, those are the kind of vulnerable areas that I see. John, do you see any others? Uh, well, I mean, that's fundamentally the thing. So um, for folks who are familiar with you know, the blockchain architecture side and a bit less comfortable on the crypto, uh, what you've described is essentially the wallet layer, the client layer and the, and the network layer, which, which is the kind of three main bits. And obviously there's crucial cryptography in each of those layers that, that protects things. So it's worth just quickly going over, over all three of them. So uh, you talk about compromising addresses. You're absolutely right. I think the thing that people need to worry about, though, um, on compromising addresses is that effectively that's your digital identity in, in the state of the art today. Your wallet private key is the keys in the famous meme, not your keys, not your crypto. Yeah. Right. So um, just because it's blockchain doesn't mean it's any way special in that way. And folks um, familiar with Entrust will definitely know the value of having hardware tokens or, or HSMs for keeping their keys safe. Twas ever thus. Mm -hmm. And I think most people would do much better to buy a ledger or something or a trezor than than worry about quantum attacks on their wallets right now. But for sure, that's that's kind of interesting. The The, the conversation about consensus is much more interesting, you see, because Exactly. The, the issue of um, compromising anything, whether it's a code bug, a crypto bug or an advancing quantum crypto can only happen at any point in time in one place on one computer in one piece of memory. And that computer then has to convince all of the others um, who are participating in consensus and laying down the transactions and blocks to actually apply that and to then believe that that's the main chain. And so the decentralized nature of uh, of these networks actually already has built-in resistance because they know already that building on the basis of zero trust architectures and you know trust no one and being resilient as opposed to trying to be bulletproof 
uh, was always the right kind of architecture design. So even if someone were able to go back and magically find a sort of a, a working pre-image attack against something mid-chain and rewrite history, mm -hmm. they would then have to convince all of the other computers that this is the right answer and then convince all of the clients that this new version of history is the right version of history to accept. And this is what's, um, you know, the, the shortcut version to this is to look up what a fork is. This is another thing that's often quite misunderstood or, or quite poorly understood is exactly what a fork is when you talk about blockchains. Um, but essentially, it's just a different agreement on history. And you have to get through all of those other barriers that have nothing to do with crypto um, in order to get one of these things to stick. So there are lots and lots of layers of resilience, mm -hmm. um, which offer the opportunity to spot and to highlight and to stop these kinds of attacks from being applied, even when they're mathematically possible. So that's an interesting view, John. I mean, uh, so what you've just said there is actually it's much harder to perform a 51% attack, um, even if you have computing resource to do it, mainly because of the distributed nature of blockchain. Assuming it's properly done, I mean, I, I'm not claiming that this is the truth today, because actually, if you look at the survey of technologies, you know, Bitcoin has exactly one client, right? So there's one yeah. code base to compromise. And if you could find a way of convincing them all to, to do one thing wrong, um, it's actually a 100% attack is really trivial in, in, in certain cases. So there's a way to go on the engineering, but the design of the thing um, is, 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 as I said, and, and as people put more layers in and more clients and more interoperability, you get more of that robustness and heterogeneity in, in, in the layers. And I guess sort of uh, moving on with the question of mitigation. So, I mean, we're well aware of the um, developments in NIST and the NIST competition mm -hmm. to find um, quantum yeah. resistant crypto. So what, I mean, I think there's a place where you're kind of saying, okay, at one point we have to start worrying about transitioning crypto and whether that's possible or not. So we've already said that, hey, by the way, there's already some resistance in blockchain as it is to post quantum or quantum attacks. Yeah. Um, is there any urgency then to start worrying about quantum safe techniques or you probably? Know, Probably. I mean, um, it really depends on the on the application. So my, my business uses ledgers to provide a layer of accountability to what's otherwise a, a relatively standard um, SaaS doing sort of operational information. So we, we provide continuous assurance for connected operations. It means rather than sort of checking every year to find out why there was a fire in your IoT factory, you can actually look in real time and see what's going on and stop the fire from happening. And you know, clearly you need to be able to trust the information that you're getting from all of these various web servers and, and applications if you're gonna act on it in any meaningful way. So there's a kind of accountability there, yeah. um, which, which means that the urgency really is on the identities, the kind of provenance data in, in our case. Now there are other cases where the um, uh, the confidentiality is a bit more interesting. So if you've got supply chain type use cases, which are kind of popular, um, you have antitrust concerns, meaning that you can't have competing companies on the same chain being able to see each other's pricing or yield and things like that. So it really depends on the use case where the urgency is. But I think just to, to bring out some thoughts, if there is a confidentiality requirement, um, there are key exchanges and things going on and you have basically the same issue um, that the general internet does. So 
think about that may or may not be important. What I would say is that in proper architectures, you don't need to be as vulnerable and as basic as the internet. So, so that should be fine with a, with a rejig. Um, the other thing to think about is going to be with the data inside the blocks themselves, because yeah. quite often um, you don't actually write the full data. You write some kind of chain reference or some kind of digest mm-hmm. um, or, or whatever. So you need to make sure that um, those can't be somehow faked. Um, and, and in that case, it's useful to have resistant um, algorithms uh, somewhere in the mix, either in the layer itself or in the blocks, so that you've got dual protection. Because obviously, if you, can, if you have a traditional algorithm um, in one place, but then it's wrapped in another one, then you've yeah. got two places to check. And if you check both, then they've both got to be hacked in the same way, which is essentially infeasible. So uh, it really is use case dependent. But I guess mm-hmm. the good news is that... Um, there's nothing new to learn, really, other than understanding what the crypto is for at each point in the blockchain. Um, you then just fall back to the standard question of, you know, am I worried now or am I worried in the future? So does pre-decryption capture matter? Maybe, maybe not. Probably doesn't, but but, but might do. Um, do these identities matter into the future? Probably they do. So you need to worry about the crypto being used for the identities. Um, and... Are we going to, I think the one that people never think about that I actually think is the most important is, are we ever going to have to recover this kind of thing from an archive or a backup? Yeah. Because that's, that's really the point at which you start to accrue a big legacy that gets around all of those um, questions of decentralization and the different layer checks. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm live, I can always roll over my crypto and I can check it before it's broken and then I double sign it for a bit and then I roll it over and, and I'm kind of okay. But backups, I think, are the place where we have the most interesting question over um, preparing for, um, for, for changes. So if, if your architecture deploys any of that or you have any sort of big forks or rollbacks that you do, that's a place where you've got to be really careful, I think, right from today. Yeah, that's a quite an important practical concern. And I guess if you start thinking about um, some of the other aspects in terms of, um, I, I suppose, standards, and uh, dare I say the word regulation. Yep. So I suppose that could that be a contentious area? Because the whole very nature of this is that it's supposed to be decentralized, maybe less deregulated. I mean, uh, again, you know, I'm trying to kind of very difficult a very you know trying very hard not to drag myself into the the cryptocurrency land but um <laughs> i guess it's you know just saying okay are there any barriers to 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 mitigating in time are we are we going to be chasing our tails uh yeah it's an interesting one isn't it um i wonder if it isn't worth just bringing that question up a layer and and saying that computers are computers and data is data it's it's unusual to regulate specific computing technology right Thing, things that are regulated are business operations um of, of one kind or another and so if we look at the u.s executive order 14028 or last week's related missive on federal systems and zero trust architectures if you look at the nis from from europe from a couple of years ago all of those point very heavily towards critical computer systems being you know, well protected, being prepared for the future, being built on zero trust. Um, there's a very 
significant overlap between the requirements of those important regulations and the capabilities of blockchain-based architectures. So there's lots and lots of kind of implied regulation and detail in there. But actually, all that they're saying is that if you build bridges or run power stations, you have always been responsible for your bridges and power stations being safe. And just because you're using computers doesn't make you any less responsible for your bridges and, and power stations being safe. So you'd better understand what those computer systems are doing and what the importance of the data that you're bringing into your data-driven or digital transformation is, is going to have on your safety stance and your, and your security. So I think actually what we're, what we're looking at is getting regulations to say, what are we trying to achieve? And then making sure that the crypto that we deploy underneath it is well enough understood by the practitioners the people who actually hold the keys, the people who commission the systems, that they can confidently keep those regulations and those compliance standards together. Yeah, that makes a whole bunch of sense. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. um, it is a tough question, but I completely agree that, you know, if it's your business to look after assets, um, you need to be doing everything, uh, covering all bases to make sure that they are kept safe and um, and perhaps try and understand things a little more deeply now um, because there are, you know, attacks are getting more sophisticated um, and hackers are getting more determined. So it's just, yeah, you can't leave any sort of rocks unturned, can you? Exactly. And I think, you know, even taking that a bit further, since you mentioned the regulation side, you know, obviously there are legal disclosure requirements and things that, that go on. So something else which is really important to, to raise is that post-quantum crypto or not, and attacks or not, it is perfectly possible to have a secure ledger which has all of the promise of decentralization and joint accountability and long-term immutability, you know, all of the provenance, governance and immutability guarantees that everybody wants from a sort of a high assurance shared system. You can have all of those and also still have access rights for law enforcement and, and lawful intercept if those are part of your of your business uh, operations and your regulation standpoint so um i think yeah it's it, it's an important question to talk about the regulation mm -hmm. but i think regulating this technology specifically or making uh, regulations and compliance specifically for post-quantum readiness i think that would be a bit of a mistake because this uh, you know in all honesty is no different to 2010 when we had um, the, the Shah sunset. Right? The last podcast, we sort of discussed migration, um, how difficult it will be to migrate. Um, you know, with Shah 1 to Shah 2, that transition was much longer than expected. And, you know, for our business, we're, we're, we know that quantum safe algorithms, uh, the transition will take several years. So I'm just wondering, does something like that apply to blockchain? Is there going to be a migration? from classical crypto to post-quantum crypto? Yes. <laughs> and how difficult will that be? <laughs> it really depends. There are a lot of changes happening in, in the blockchain space um, for, for all kinds of reasons, right? So Ethereum, mm -hmm. the, the world computer, mm -hmm. is updating to have things like sharding and it's updating for roll-ups and it's updating for having uh, different consensus mechanisms, all in pursuit of um, speed and, and scale and everything else. Um, 
And the one play, and and so you know those those changes can come with changing keys and can come with changing algorithms, and those challenges are fairly well understood. The place again where the challenge is going to start to get difficult is that some chain technologies are thinking about archiving, and so you only have sort of a year's worth of agreed state online, and other things are sort of pointed at through various layers of archive. And again, in that case, if you're not keeping those up to date, if you're not transitioning the crypto if you're not keeping dual signatures that kind of thing could get tricky uh, but mm-hmm. it's such a fluid space you know the the, the details are, are tricky to pin down right now mm-hmm. and when we talk to our customers i mean one of the first recommendations we make is you know to do a crypto inventory of what algorithms and mechanisms are being used and where so again applying this to blockchain is there a similar recommendation you'd suggest or actions for our listeners to, to be doing now? Well, I guess the good news is that you're not alone. Uh, the whole the whole point of, of blockchain, if, if you're the only person using it, you don't need a blockchain, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, just to outline why why I use ledgers in, in my business is because you'll have two, or actually probably 20, busy and important businesses who are working together to achieve some kind of safety aim. And unfortunately, no matter how trustworthy your IT admin is and how good they are at keeping their systems patched and safe, I can't bet my insurance policy on that. I've got to trust my IT admin. And so what the blockchain does is create an accountability for that shared infrastructure that allows everybody to zero trust each other. Mm -hmm. So if you're on your own, you don't need a blockchain. You need a better IT department. And what that means is that um, you can work in that community with a large body of technical experts, with all of the node operators to agree on the updates and the protection you're getting and and pull on all of those resources and expertise to to make those upgrades. So, yes, I would say to your to your um, customers that they need to be looking at this stuff and update their crypto and transition their algorithms for Mm -hmm. sure, um, as they always ever did. And they need to make sure that their wallet keys are not compromised. Otherwise, you've got to transition your addresses just the same way you ever did. But, you know, the the thing that's easier about this this time around is that you are in a community and you can come to an agreement, dare I say consensus, about how you jointly protect all of your assets and agree your joint history uh, rather than having to do it in a panic on your own. I think that's great. I think that's a good uh, a good takeaway. You're not alone. Yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, I, I guess the so it's interesting for me is to you know people like um, Michelle Mosca saying, "Hey, 15 years and things are going to be broken." Um, but uh, I suppose maybe adding to the crypto inventory, I'd suggest um, looking at some kind of risk assessment. Or maybe thinking of a recovery plan and saying, okay, what what is it you you need to do based on, uh, I suppose, uh, looking at the crystal ball. But um, yeah, that's probably my two pence to this piece. Yeah, well, so be prepared. It's a great point, Pally, be prepared. So if, if, if you haven't prepared for these things to be broken and updated, yeah, you will be very sad in 15 years time. Yeah, <laughs> you prepare yeah. and the time to prepare is now. Should definitely be thinking about this. So. Yeah, yeah. A good one. All right. Well, um, I would like to thank you both, uh, Pally and John, for joining us today. That was a very insightful conversation. I really appreciate it. And I know I certainly learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners learned a lot. So I'd like to thank you so much for taking the time and and having this conversation today. Wonderful. Thanks very much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And that's it for today's podcast. Keep up with us and new episodes by following us on LinkedIn and Twitter using the links in the episode description. And thank you so much for listening to Entrust Engage. Engage.